14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and I'm no oceanographer, but I think the problem with the Poseidon can be summed up basically as sky side go water, water side go sky. And everybody poops on the poop deck. <laughs> what? That's what it's there for, right? Uh, no. Remind me never to get on a boat with you. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen the pee deck, but the poop deck. Spend a lot of time there. Yeah. So this week we are watching the Poseidon Adventure, so the original Poseidon Adventure from 1972, up against Poseidon 2016? 2016. No, 2006. 2006? Yeah, back mm-hmm. when Josh, Josh Lucas was still relevant. The hell did I watch? No. Um. Yeah, 2006, sorry. Uh. Yeah, so we're getting our boats upside down and going out the back end? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Poseidon. Another poop joke. <laughs> if anything, you're consistent. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm more consistent than I used to be. Uh, if you like consistency, you'll probably like, like the shows on the podcast collectives, such as I Am Salt Lake, Tales from the Hard Side, The Empty Rant Podcast, The Portland Beer Club Podcast, and of course, The Rad Dad Radio Hour. <laughs> You done? Thankfully, yes. Oh, God. Okay, so iTunes, Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, all those pod chasing and pod places. Find us there and uh, give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP, 708-669-9727 if you have an idea for a show or would like to leave some commentary. We have no voicemails. Uh, Damn it. I don't think anybody's listening anymore. What? Craig is. If you're listening, call us. Please. We know you're out there. We can hear you breathing. We're lonely. We can't hear them breathing. That's the problem. Oh. What do I hear? I think there's somebody somebody in the house. That's background, Phil. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have changed the show's voicemail greeting to... (laughs) It's in my eyes! (laughs) (laughs) Click. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a lot of boat talk today (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) talking about boats oh my god it's a captain and tenille you have all the energy of a three-toed sloth right now what are you doing (laughs) we're talking about boats talking about boats today thank you cleveland (laughs) they don't they don't float upside down boats all right about that time oh my god it is so about that time it's about that time (laughs) I'm saying it's about that time. That's past that time. Music. Movies. TV. And boats. <laughs> Gotta get me my boats and hose. Yes. Prestige worldwide. <laughs> so this week, Patrick has chosen, not surprisingly, December 12th, 1972, the release of the original The Poseidon Adventure. Ah, Ernest Borgnine. So music. The number one song in the land was I Am Woman by Helen Reddy, which was knocked up. <laughs> uh, knocked Got up. Got him. 
by Billy Paul's me and Mr. Jones. That's your Mrs. Mrs. It's me and Mrs. Jones. That's what I said. Me and Mrs. Jones. You said Mr. Jones. Me and Mrs. 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 Jones. I'm progressive. (laughs) They got a thing. Me and Mr. Jones. That's a little jokey joke for my own sake, my own funniness. (laughs) It worked. We're glad somebody's laughing. All right, so moving on. Frank Edwin Wright III was born on December 9th in Frankfurt, Germany. Known professionally as Trey Cool, he is an American musician, singer, and songwriter known best as the drummer for Green Day. Cool has also played in The Lookouts, Sam I Am, Dead Mermaids, Boo Boo, and The Brood, and the Green Day side projects The Network and The Foxborough Hot Tubs. Never heard of The Foxborough. I've never heard of any of those bands other than Green Day. I'm familiar with Sam I Am. Yeah, the Foxborough Hot Tubs. That's a terrible name for a band. I got nothing. Are the hot tubs also time machines? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> if they are, I'm completely yeah. I'm, I'm flipping the opinion on the. I'm just saying the guy, the guys who is criticizing the Foxborough Hot Tubs was in a band called Jeffrey's Appendix. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to point that out. That's all. With no comment, no commentary, and? just. And then fucking end. (laughs) And then... All right, moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was The Poseidon Adventure, which knocked off The Last Tango in Paris. That is a hell of a movie. I've still never seen The Last Tango in Paris. I think we had a bunch of people over when we were living in Oak Park to go to watch it, and it was just awkward all around. I think anybody really... Yeah, it's not a big group movie. No, definitely not a... Yeah. Feel good couples movie. I do know one of my favorite stories of this is that when this did come out, my uh, grandparents went to it because they thought it was a musical. Uh Oh, yeah. Words were had. Conversations were had a lot of what the hell were they doing in this movie type of things. But uh, there was some dancing. Just bring a stick of butter if you're going to watch. Womp womp. Movies released this week included Sleuth, Child's Play, Man of La Mancha, The Poseidon Adventure, The Getaway, The Heartbreak Kid, Beaten Tilly, and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. Has The Getaway been redone? Yeah. Yes. Hmm. Uh, 1994, Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger. Uh, then and then. Yeah. But. No, that's for 2019. Oh, no, no, 2000. No, that's a video game, 2002, The Getaway. Anyway, oh, that is, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go with no. Stuart Peter Townsend, born December 15th, is an Irish actor. His most notable portrayals are the characters Lestat de Lioncourt in Queen of the Damned and Dorian Gray in Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Holy shit, those are two bad movies. Yeah. I was going to say, those are a couple of winners. That is not the two movies I want to be remembered for if I was him. Well, at least it's not Catwoman. Is it? You know what? I I don't think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen gets to say at least it's not Catwoman. Because at least uh, Catwoman's source material wasn't, like, top tier. That's a good point. Hmm. Yeah, LXG is quite possibly the movie that makes me the most irrationally angry just for existing. Even more than Ghost Rider? Yes. Oh, yeah. 
if you've read any of the uh, League, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics, you would know because it's the storylines and the characters and that are just fantastic. Yeah, e- even though like Ghost Rider was one of my favorite characters in high school, probably my favorite comic book character in high school, the gulf of quality between the movie and the uh, graphic novels for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is the greatest I think I've ever seen for like a, an adaptation Anything I can think of, uh, like film to video game, film to comic, film to whatever. Mm. I don't know. Swamp Thing, it, while entertaining, was a pretty horrible adaptation of some pretty great source material. But here's my thing: the Swamp yeah. Thing that the, that movie was way before like any of the Vertigo Swamp Thing stuff came out. That's you talking I'm about the Adrian Barbeau version? Yeah, which I love that movie. But if you read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's a whole nother level of, of comic book. Yeah, just the, actually, uh, aside from HBO's recent Watchmen, in general, I would say don't watch adaptations of Alan Moore stuff. It's pretty much all shit. So, yeah, TV. Top shows in the land were very 1972, All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Hawaii Five-0, and she's called Maud. I liked Maud. It was a good show. There- there was another version of Maud. No, it's in the it's in the theme song. She's called Maud, something like that. Oh, yeah, Maud. I thought there was a second show. Like there was Maud, and then there was she's called Maud. Then there was the Maud Squad. Then there was Maud Pizza. Moving on, Robert L. Mosher Jr. was a sitcom writer in the night in the fifties and sixties. Best known for his work on Amos and Andy, Meet Mister McNutley. Leave it to Beaver. All these have a lot. It's getting a little weird here. Ichabod and me bringing up Buddy and the Munsters. He died of a brain tumor in Encino, California on December 15th. Huh? I'm so old. I can still watch the Munsters. Oh, I love the Munsters. Still entertaining. Munsters or Adam's family? Uh, Munsters. I'm an Adams Family man myself. I probably, given a choice between two, I'd probably have to go with the Adams Family. I loved reading the comics when I was a kid, but I started out watching the Munsters, so it has a special place in my heart. I do have to say the Munsters have a better theme song. Patrick, any thoughts? I would have to go with Adams Family. Although the Munsters is uh, the answer to one of my favorite trivia questions. Oh, yeah. The the first the first live action sitcom. To show a couple sleeping in the same bed. Nice. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Nope. I thought the original answer, I thought everybody was, thought that was the Brady Bunch. Nope. It was the Munsters. I had actually heard that. I knew that one. Way to go, Herman. All right. Ho, 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 ho. That's not bad. Melissa Ann Francis, born December 12th, is an American a- actress and commentator for the Fox Business Network and Fox News. Prior to FBN, she worked at CNBC. She is a co-host of After the Bell and an anchor of Happening Now Newscast. Francis started her acting career by appearing in a Johnson & Johnson shampoo commercial at six months old and became best known for her role as Cassandra Cooper Ingalls on LHOTP, the acronym of the week, which is... Uh, last Hooker on the Pill. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I thought for sure with the Ingles hint, this was the one you were going to get. No, it is not Last Hooker on the Pill. That's a good guess, though. It's, it's what? What is it, Mike? It's uh, Little House on the Prairie. That is correct. 
Yes. Which is a similar show to Josh's, but not quite. Yeah, kind of. I well, guess. We could combine them and make a last hooker on the prairie. <laughs> Dude, I'd watch that. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Anybody looking for a good time? <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, there goes Pat. The last That's hooker true. on the fill? <laughs> the background fill? Last hooker on background fill? I don't know if I could do that. She's also had appearances in St. Elsewhere and appeared in nearly 100 commercials during her acting career. She's reportedly the inspiration for the fictional character Every Jessup in the show 30 Rock. Oh, neat. Those of you that have seen 30 Rock, Avery Jessup was played by Elizabeth Banks. Uh, I see the connection. That's all I got. <laughs> Heather Laurie Holden, born December 17th, is an American actress, producer, and model. She had roles in The X-Files, The Majestic, Silent Hill, The Mist, and The Shield. But she's mostly known for her portrayal of Andrea in The Walking Dead and Renee in The Americans. Andrea. Andrea. Rest in peace, Andrea. Spoilers. Spoilers, sorry. Yeah, way to go. Lastly, in sports. Sports. On December 17th, NFL running back Dave Hampton became the first player for the Atlanta Falcons to rush for 1,000 yards in a season as Atlanta closed its season against the Kansas City Chiefs. On his next carry, Hampton was tackled for a five-yard loss and finished the year with 995 yards rushing. My boys took him down. John Ernest Mills, known as Jackie Mills, was a New Zealand cricketer who played in seven test matches between 1930 and 1933. Uh Uh-oh. A left-handed opening batsman, Mills played for Auckland and toured England, scoring over 1,000 runs on each tour. In the first match of the 1929-30 season, he scored 185 in a victory for Auckland over Otago. He scored more than half of Auckland's total of 356 and more than Otago's two innings combined. He was the first New Zealander to make a test century on debut when he scored 117 for New Zealand against England. Dick Brittenden said, Mills, lean and graceful, never seemed sufficiently robust for the demands of test cricket. He could probably claim to be the only test batsman who habitually wore wool from neck to ankle next to the skin. But if his batting looked effete, it was effective. A most graceful driver and cutter, he had the left-hander's penchant for the hook. Spare and frail he was, but there was tremendous power, which came from some hidden source. Jackie Mills died December 11th at 67 years of age. I guess his source gave out. Uh, <clears throat> you guess what? That's so. I'm curious about the commentary of the he's the only one who wore wool neck to ankle right against the skin. Like Ernest Hemingway writing about him or something. <laughs> what was going on there? Yeah, apparently it, like him not wearing an undershirt it was a big deal, I guess. Huh. I don't know. Imagine if Ernest Hemingway did sports commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be entertaining. Oh, let's not open that door. I'm not an Ernest Hemingway fan. Don't say you had to be. All the reason to open that door. Just said you had to imagine it. Imagine it, Pat. No! Imagine it. I refuse to. Don't think of a zebra. Don't think of a zebra. Don't think of a zebra. Damn it, I'm thinking of a zebra. And Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) Ernest Hemingway riding a zebra. 
Oh. And lastly in sports, Richard Morgan Fleer was born on February 25th, 1949 in Memphis, Tennessee. His birth name is widely believed to be Fred Phillips, although on different documents he is also credited as Fred Damare or Fred Stewart. His adoptive father and mother settled in Adena, Minnesota, where the young Fleer lived through his childhood. He participated in interscholastic wrestling, football, and track in high school, and then trained as a professional wrestler with Vern Gagne once he graduated. He attended Gagne's first wrestling camp with Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, the Iron Sheik, and Ken Patera at Gagne's barn outside Minneapolis in the winter of 1971. On December 10th, 1972, during this week, he made his debut in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, battling George Scrap Iron Gadaski in a te- to a 10-minute draw while adopting the ring name Ric Flair. Woo! Nice. And that is the rest of the story. I'm glad he lived through, you know, getting locked in a childhood. barn with the Iron Sheik. Yeah, he had a really, really bad childhood. He was like part of a what was later undercovered uh, was later uncovered to be a baby kidnapping adoption scheme thing, and he was like caught up in that. And he like got he was one of the kids that was supposed to go somewhere when the whole thing got busted. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Yep. And he turned out to be no Ric Flair, widely considered to be one of the, if not the greatest wrestlers of all time. No wonder he was always going, woo! It's because he was trying to warn people he was going to be kidnapped. <laughs> woo! Glad I escaped that shit. <laughs> exactly. He's a very interesting story, Ric Flair. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. Pretty cool. Take us out, keyboard, Joel. No, 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 no. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I approve. So back in the early 70s, there was a massive disaster flick type of thing going on. Airport. Towering Inferno. The Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. Basically a way to get an ensemble cast in an area on one type of set and try to kill them off one by one. (laughs) And it's wild. This used to be the prestige movie where you send all of your A-listers. And now the disaster flick is just not. No, it is not. Um. And this and that that is the thing is like when I watched two thousand the two thousand six one, but we'll get to that. You know, I was expecting a little bit more with the cast, but um, so this one, the Poseidon Adventure, in contrast to just Poseidon for the for the now later, uh, directed by Ronald Neem, uh, who has done Great Expectations, The Golden Salamander. Okay, something called One of Our Aircraft is Missing. He also, let's see, in 1990, he did the short, The Magic Balloon. A couple other uh, cool stuff that he did over here. But, oh, he did Gambit. That was a thing that I saw before that, that we watched uh, for the... Uh, he did the then or the now? He did the then. Oh. Yeah. Huh, okay. And I, I love Great Expectations. I love mm-hmm. that story. It's a good movie, too. Yeah, he also did the uh, 1970 Scrooge, the Albert Finney version with Albert Finney and Alec Guinness. Oh, nice. Yeah. So he's got some chops. Good credits. Yeah. Uh, written by Paul Gallico, who wrote the novel, uh, also wrote uh, The Pride of the Yankees, and a lot of German stuff. <laughs> Mrs. Harris, Der Geschmugglet Henry. 
Joel, Joel's all like, oh yeah, I own that DVD. Yeah. Miss Harris fahrt nach Machau. Mrs. Harris goes to Moscow. Huh. I think these are porns. I'm guessing. That's what I'm going with. Shiza porn. <laughs> uh, screenplay is written by Sterling Siliphant, which is an unusual name, but this guy also did Towering Inferno, a movie called Charlie in 1968, and In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Stuger. Sterling. Steiger. Steiger. Steiger? Oh. Not Sterling. Rod Steiger. Samsonite. Yeah. <laughs> that was way yeah. off. Totally wrong. Silliphant. Yeah, he has, he has some good, uh, good stuff under his belt. Do, do, that do, one. And do, Wendell do, May, do, do, do. another writer for it. And he did, uh, out of Poseidon Adventure, was he writer for Death Wish. Nice. Anatomy of a Murder. Got some stuff going on there. This, in the ensemble cast for 1972, was a literal powerhouse of characters. It's like the Circus of the Stars. Yeah, so you've got a Gene Hackman as Reverend Frank Scott, uh, acting like Popeye Doyle's cousin. Ernest Borgnine, and more of a angry character that I'm used to seeing him as. Kind of an a-hole. Yeah. Red Buttons as James Martin, the... Oh. Enigmatic, kind of sad single guy. He was so likable. Red Buttons is always likable. But I mean, like this character, I just wanted to hug him. Well, he, he was kind of down on himself, you know. Carol Lindley as Nani Perry. Also, Roddy McDowell, who shows up all over the place as Acres. Popping up for a yes, sir. Yes, of sir. course, sir. It goes down this hall, sir. I was Cornelius in Planet of the Apes, sir. <laughs> Uh, Stella Stevens as Linda Rogo. Shelley Winters as Belle Rosen. Jack Elbertson as Manny Rosen. Or as my kids said, hey, it's Grandpa Joe. Yeah, right? <laughs> I didn't, didn't know he did anything else. Yes, he did more than that. Pamela Sue Martin as Susan Shelby. Arthur O'Connell as Chaplain John. Eric Shea as Robin Shelby. Leslie Nielsen as Captain Harrison in a very brief beginning of the show. Very brief. Yeah. Fred Setoff is Lynn Carlos. Byron Webster is the purser. John, Jen Irvin is Dr. Carol Verlo. Sheila Matthews as the nurse. John Crawford, chief engineer. Bob Hastings as MC. And Eric Nelson as Tinkum. Oh. There's only a Tink? 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 Tinkum. 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 I've seen him. You Tinkum. <laughs> Those... Tinkum Flicker. So, so... <laughs> nice. I don't know why that made me laugh. <laughs> I'm back now. Uh, so Paul Gallico was inspired to write his novel by a voyage he made on the Queen Mary. When he was having breakfast in the dining room, the liner was hit by a large wave, sending people and furniture crashing to the other side of the vessel. It was further inspired by a true incident which occurred abor aboard the Queen Mary during World War II. Packed with American troops bound for Europe, the ship was struck by a gargantuan freak wave in the North Atlantic. It was calculated that if the ship had rolled another five inches... She would capsize like the Poseidon. Damn. Damn. I guess, I mean, because that was a big question watching. It was like, could this really happen? Apparently it can. Yeah. Waterside, no-go sky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shelly Winters gained 35 pounds for the part of Belle Rosen. Afterwards, she complained that she was never able to get back to her original weight, no matter how hard she tried. Hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, while he and the others are lifting the giant Christmas tree, Rogo mutters, holy fuck, it's heavy. Uh, this is a genuine reaction from Ernest Borgnine, and the line was kept. That's awesome. I noticed that when I was listening to that, because I'm like, 1970, wait, what did I just hear? <laughs> Shelley Winters also trained with an Olympic swim coach so that her character, who was a former award-winning swimmer, would come across more realistically in the underwater scenes. Huh. Neat, huh? Wow, she was all in. Yeah, she really got into this role. I know, right? I mean, and, and Shelley Winters, though. I mean, she was kind of known for it, too. Stella Stevens, Linda Rogo, once said that she had always wished she had kept the panties that she had worn in the film, as she could sell them on eBay and make a fortune. Well, maybe like tens of dollars. Kind of high hopes there, Stella. Yeah, fortune is, is a big word, but... I mean, Does it come with stink? <laughs> This is what you're here for, folks. Right there. That's it. Once again, it's a Cleveland impression. <laughs> Giggity. Oh, wait, that's not Cleveland. Yeah, no. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Embarrassing us all over. He was on a different show. All right. So, is this the first viewing for any of us? No. Um, me. No. Oh. Hmm. So, what were you expecting, and did you get it? Uh, you know, I had no expectations, really. Uh, I would say that the thing that was most surprising to me is that uh, when you watch a lot of disaster films or even horror films past this point in history, you have a pretty good idea watching it, uh, which characters are going to die. Like something about their storyline or their personality or something like marks them where you're like, yeah, this person's probably going to get it. But this one, I think legitimately from moment to moment, you don't, you can't really even guess the fates of quite a few of the characters until they happen or don't. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I had been a long time since I'd seen this. I do remember watching it back like on the CBS movie of the day or the afternoon movie or whatever it was. But uh, again, it was cut up like commercials and everything. What I was expecting was kind of like terror on the love boat. <laughs> I mean, 1972, it's been so long since I'd seen it. What I got was I was amazingly surprised at how well all the characters were fleshed out before the disaster struck. Which kinda, is important. It, it, it really is. I mean, you kind of knew, like, you had all, everything down to uh, um, Mike and Linda Rogo, Ernest Borgnine and Stella Stevens. I mean, you knew their entire relationship with just a couple scenes with them. You know, the Rosens, you knew about them. You know, everybody, there was just enough, uh, just enough character. Development, yeah. Yeah, just enough development. Not too much, but just enough that you were like, I genuinely care about these people. These are characters I'm involved with now. And it's interesting that if you're going to compare this to Titanic, that's not what this episode is about. But if you're going to just look at the two as boat disaster movies, Titanic is twice as long and basically only focuses on two characters. Yeah, pretty much. And neither of which is as developed as most of the characters in the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, I mean, it, it all the way down to, I mean, I like the interaction between Belle and Manny through the whole thing. The two of them were uh, this Jewish couple going overseas to see their grandson. You you see the hopes of them meeting their grandson. You see them interacting with the other ones, like talking to uh, a Red Buttons as he's talking about, you know, how he does. he's been single for so long and all the different, you know, vitamins he's taken. I mean, there was a good interaction between all of them where you could see why they would have all ran off together to try and find a, another way out with just that group, you know, versus hey, I'm leaving, who's coming with me type of thing. It was Gene Hackman grabbed the people that he knew 
and took off. And there was actually a bit of trust between them before they actually left, climbed the tree and got out of there. Which is different than the, than the remake, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of movies, unfortunately, and, and horror specifically, tend to not focus on character development. So why do you care when somebody dies if you don't know them? Right. They're just cannon fodder. Now, out of all the deaths, no, I'm sorry, Patton, uh, Joel, you've, you've seen this one before. How long has it been since the last time you saw it? I think I watched it either before or after Poseidon 2000, the, the new one, 2006, came out on, on VHS or DVD. Yeah, it would have been DVD by that point. I watched it, them pretty close to each other because I was curious what the, the original was like. I think my story is pretty much exactly the same. Like I I saw Poseidon one night on cable and just, you know, it it came on after I'd watched something and I didn't change the channel. And then after I watched it, I was like, oh, I wonder what the first movie was like. And this obviously was years before we ever did this podcast. So, yeah, I um, I was do- I was doing the podcast long before we ever did it. <laughs> no, you weren't. Look at you. Uh, I forgot to toss this one in, in there. I've done the trivia, but um, James Martin. Red Button's character was originally meant to go to Gene Wilder. Huh. Which I think he could have. I mean, I could see the him playing the character also. I think it'd also be a good match. Be yeah, I could see that. I could see I, that. Similar personalities, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, for myself, it's been easily two decades since I've seen this. And it was, again, just like I said, watching it on. You know, watching on TV pops up and, hey, I recognize this. And you kind of keep it on in the background. Was anybody surprised by any of the deaths? Specifically, Josh, what was the most surprising? Bell, 100%. Really? It was out. Of, it was kind of out of nowhere because, like, you don't usually have a scene like that where someone tags their signature skill to save everybody, gets through, makes it, and then dies of a heart attack. What is that? Right. Good, good writing. That's what that is. Yes, it's good writing in a very unexpected direction. Yeah, they didn't take the cop out and go with, oh, well, she she made it just long enough. Well, we'll talk about that in the remake, but made it long enough to save him, but then died underwater. And and just this is one of my favorite genres. I love one person or, or a small group of people against overwhelming odds. And so... I was kind of excited we 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 did this because I was I, I like these kinds of movies as a rule. Yeah, I, I like these kind of movies. I like disaster movies, but I also like it when it's actually a a true ensemble cast. But what are the with Josh? You're talking about Bell's death. One of the things that I liked is when Reverend Frank came back. You know, it's over. We got we we got across that sort of thing. And Manny goes, "Did she make it?" She's over there. And he's like, I don't like the way you said that. You know, like he knew immediately. You mean Rogo? Was that was it Rogo that said that? Yeah, he sent yeah. Rogo back to yeah. get him. He's oh, like, right. don't tell him what happened. Just get him here. Yeah, Rogo. Yeah, when Rogo came back and he got and But the second the second he said she's over there, you can tell Manny's like, what? back it up, you know. But, you know, little little things like that. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of work on the actors to get a hundred percent into their characters. Well, and speaking of, of surprising deaths, I, again, credit to the writers for not being afraid to kill off your main character, but you know, I don't think we have to call spoilers, but the fact that Gene Hackman doesn't make it till the end is, is a big credit to them. Cause you know, he was a big name at that point. Oh yeah. So, you know, to have him make it that far 
and then just suddenly just he's gone and it's like okay wait what just happened what was there was another movie that we watched not too long ago where who we thought was a main character oh no you pat was talking about it with going to the movies with his dad or oh yeah executive Steven seagal yeah, yeah. Steven seagal dying in the first five minutes or uh there was another one samuel jackson and um i hate to say deep blue sea but yeah. deep blue sea no. or or even the, the classic psycho same thing yeah Right, talk about a flipping the whole thing in its head. I mean, but that was that's. I mean, even though it was late in the game on this one, I think it was a great uh, character arc for Frank Scott on this one. Also, I thought his death was kind of over dramatic and and schmaltzy. Myself. Well, I mean, he got he got his his long farewell speech sort of before he he left, but it, you know, it gave Rogo a chance to kind of make good. Because he was kind of a dick. Yeah. That was kind of rough for me to see. Because I always think Ernest Borgnine and, you know, the happy-go-lucky, hey, guys, type of... Seeing him be an asshole, you know, 90% of this movie was... ah. Remember we used to have the picture of Ernest Borgnine hanging up on the dorm floor? Yes, we did. We did. The sailor cap and everything. Now, I I do have to... It was hung in Ernest. <laughs> the kids... Susan and Robin Shelby. I was really expecting, I had forgotten, but I had, I was expecting uh, the kid to be the reason somebody died later on. Yeah. I was expecting a lot of bad things from that, from Robbie and none of them ever really came. So I was, I was actually happy about that. He was kind of the reason that they survived, to be honest, if he wouldn't have known what he did about the ship, right. They would have been in trouble. I just expected him to be some precocious little shit. And now he just turned out to be a good kid. Yeah, especially when he apologizes to Bell. Right? Yeah. I didn't mean to say you're fat. Really? That's what you're worried about right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's a little kid's mentality, though, you know? Yeah. I mean, he played it off very well. And I like what what you're saying, Pat, that he wasn't just a precocious kid. I mean, in the very beginning where he's fighting with his sister, you're kind of like, oh, God, here we go. You know, this kid's going to get somebody in trouble. And he never really does, except for one time when he goes to go take a leak <laughs> trying to find him. But well, when you gotta go, you gotta go. Yeah, right. I mean, it's his knowledge of. I mean, he was actually useful. You know, he knew where things were and was able to back up. Hey, yeah, my engineer friend. He told me where this was, and they're like, "All right, cool, kid. You know, you know, we're gonna follow your follow your lead," and never really fell into that trope of the uh, eventual victim. And at that point, beggars can't be choosers as far as information is concerned. So, Josh. So, Mike, what was your favorite part? <laughs> get your, get your, what was your, okay, so what was your, what was your favorite death? I already said that. I went first. Oh, yeah, it did. I, I, well, it wasn't favorite, but it was the most impactful. Okay. I don't know any of the deaths were my favorite, because that was the thing, is the whole thing about this film is there wasn't anyone who was telegraphed. It's like, fuck that guy. Yeah. Now, I did think that um, Aker's death was kind of lame. Yeah, the, the steam uh, steam pipe. I thought he might make it farther when I first saw it. And can I just say, speaking of deaths, when they they leave everybody behind and Hackman's still staying up there trying to convince him, and he's finally like, "To hell with you, I'm I'm out of here." And then everything starts to flood, and they're trying to get out. And he helps him briefly, and then he slowly shuts the door. <laughs> I was like, "Holy fuck!" And then they, you know, you just think about all those people just died 
Yeah. You hear them all screaming. <laughs> my, my favorite part of it, he shuts the door, and it's so obviously just a set of swinging doors. I'm like, well, that sells that. They're all dead. And I'm just imagining the, them on the other side of the door. Just open the door. He's like, nope, you're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> you're dead to me. You're, you're just all dead. It's a swinging door. Dead, I said. You're dead. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, for nineteen, I want to say for nineteen. One of the things, nineteen seventy-two did not have the nineteen seventy-two pacing. No, 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 it definitely did not. Yeah, that was one thing I was ready for, thinking that I was going to get was a lot of the expository conversation or long panning shots that we're used to of these. But uh, I think this may be why the, why it did so well. Yeah, it was it was like wall to wall action for nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, strong enjoyment on this one. Um, since. When did we stop doing the New Year's Eve mosh pit thing? Like, what uh, the fuck was that all about? Where they crossed their hands and they were all just like jamming into each other and bouncing around. And I know that was pretty aggressive, wasn't it? Yeah, I was, I was like, this is a, basically like a, a mosh pit for the wealthy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, why did we stop doing that? Probably because it keeps sinking ships. Because <laughs> we're not wealthy. Oh, well, well, yeah, some of us aren't. How do you know they're not still doing it? True. Oh, you, yeah. See, now we just get a little peek into the world of the wealthy. Thank you, Joel. Ah, thanks, Joel. Now I feel like shit. You're welcome. Awesome. I want enough money to mosh on New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> and how cool is the whole concept of everything being upside down? Because everything you know, like, you know, you're walking down a passageway, you see a door, you, you know, you go into the engine room or the kitchen or whatever. And then all of a sudden everything's flipped. And so you got to change the entire way you're thinking. And just that whole concept to me is enjoyable. It had to be a hell of a lot of fun for the set designers. Mm -hmm. Right. We need everything to be upside down. They actually had two sets. I mean, I wish in my mind, I, if they had it where they built giant set that would rotate, but they had two sets built up for one upside down, one for regular reading the maps, what's going on, where's the water going to be coming from next? Because that was like the big villain in this whole movie, is the water. Chasing him down the whole time. And with Nani freaking out every time uh, they popped around the corner. We need to make an earmark about the water being the main enemy when we get to the, the now. Because mm. I have a point about that. Uh-oh. What are the... Going back to the deaths. The death of the non-core characters in this movie... How about that guy who had the grand piano land right on him? Oh, right. Yeah, that, that'll definitely leave a mark. <laughs> that was the luckiest mofo in the whole boat right there. <laughs> I mean, or the guy, or either him or the guy who fell through the stained glass ceiling when the whole thing flipped and then got electrocuted. That must have been one hell of a stunt to just shoot. Oh, yeah. I can't. That, that had to be in some good stuff. Well, and it's kind of nice because it happens quickly so you know you realize that the characters don't have a lot of time to think about what they're going to do because they're in a situation that you would never be in in and and under any circumstances where all of a sudden the room you're in is completely upside down and it happens you know just in a heartbeat and that is just i mean they, they did that really well even though sometimes it felt a little bit like a movie of the week because well you know the 70s it's hard to do some of the special effects it's still played off very nicely as far as kind of how quickly it all changed. Yeah, it's one of those situations where if someone asks you, well, if you were in this situation, what would you do? My answer is, like, pro well, probably fucking die. Yeah. Right. Fall. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be one of the fuckers who just got killed when it flipped over. 
Yeah, not, not probably not one of the survivors. I would have been the one guy that burst into flames in an underwater scenario. <laughs> just saying. Jason, went, just us, as we're drowning, Joel, we're like, leave it to Joel. Just do it wrong. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Joel's, Joel's the one guy in the stall of the bathroom. He's just propped himself up with his hands and his feet in the, in the toilet stall. And it flips upside down, and he's still just upside down, like, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs> and then I drown in the toilet. <laughs> it's not got any water in it, but I drown somehow. <laughs> and then I burst into flames. <laughs> um. So 1979, they actually made a sequel to this one called Beyond the Poseidon Adventure which it was not as good as a commercial success as this one was, but get this cast list. Michael Caine as Captain Mike Turner, Carl Malden as Will- Wilbur Hubbard, and Sally Field as the salvage team, Telly Savalas, Paul McCurney, he was in The Untouchables, Peter Boyle, Angela Cartwright, Jack Warden, Shirley Knight, Veronica Hamel, Shirley Jones, Slim Pickens, and Mark Harmon. Damn. I would watch that. Are you going to mention the uh, the miniseries? No, there was a miniseries? Yeah, with Steve Gutenberg. Oh, I thought you were... Oh, yeah, I, I know that. They don't even actually... Oh, no. Yeah, we don't, we don't yeah. need to discuss that. Yeah, Rutger Hauer, Steve Gutenberg, and Alec Baldwin, Adam Baldwin in the uh, movie you never, never knew. knew ne- never knew you didn't want, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this doesn't need to be a miniseries, just saying. Peter Weller was in that one? Was he? Yeah. Huh. That's C. Thomas Howell? What? <laughs> Again? We just talked about him. Did we? Yeah, like one or two episodes ago. Oh, well, I guess he comes back around every now and then. It's like Haley's Comet. <laughs> Except he's around a lot more than that. All right, I think the, I think the wind has gone out of our sails on this. Unfortunately. Uh, he made a boat reference. Ah, boats. Um, I'm in the toilet. So I guess uh, time, to, time to go to the break, and we'll come back and talk about the remake. Yeah. That's how this show goes, right? That's what we did. Why did they make such a big deal about the whole ballast situation if they were never ever going to address it? Like, like the captain and the the one guy arguing about whether to fill the ship with ballast or not, and and, and proceed ahead at full speed, and it never really even came into play. Like the the ship was going to get wiped out regardless. Yeah, they never. Well, they probably never mentioned it again, because the only people that knew about it were the captain and that guy, and they're dead. Yeah, but I'm saying, why did we need to see that then? At that stage of the disaster, it's what they would be considering to try and fix everything. They they probably had no idea because they, they were dealing with a different situation from the one that actually flipped the ship. Like they were related, but they didn't realize how severe the problem was. Right. But I'm just saying from a storytelling standpoint, what was the point of that? I mean, to give just, Leslie Nielsen lines. Right. I, was, I would have said to show that while they weren't unprepared, they weren't like stupid. They just they, they thought they were reacting to the problem and the problem was so much worse. Right. Maybe it didn't need to be there, but I, I wouldn't have called it out as pointless or anything. Yeah, it wasn't like it was a 20 minute exposition that then had three more scenes that never went anywhere. Yeah. But what about the ballast? <laughs> they keep coming back to the ballast. <laughs> 
the little kid's like, you know, there's something about a ballast, but I don't know what it has to do with this. Where's the guy in the toilet? They shouldn't have had so much ballast. <laughs> That's what my engineer friend told me. <laughs> All right, we'll be back ballast. in a little bit. Ballast. <laughs> yeah, I think we've definitely run out of steam. Yeah. <laughs> ballast. <laughs> It's background ballast. Background ballast, no. No. No, that's not a character. No, it's the last hooker on the prairie, remember? (laughs) (laughs) Are you mad? All right, so Poseidon Adventure. No, I'm sorry, Poseidon. Ballast. Just Poseidon. Yeah. No adventure. No adventure, just Poseidon. Accurate. Yeah. Came out 2006 in the heyday of We Can CGI Everything. This is directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who did, surprisingly, Dust Boat, Enemy Mine, Outbreak, and Air Force One. Yeah, Outbreak is garbage. Well, Dust Boat and Enemy Mine are pretty damn good. I was about to say, Enemy Mine is pretty good. Yeah. Zammy's. Dust Boat's kind of a classic. Yeah. The Neverending Story. Oh, I could do without the Neverending Story. I think that is overrated. It is, but. Not enough ballast. You're overrated. Uh oh. (laughs) I could not possibly be overrated. I'm not rated at all. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) This is also written by Mark Prozovich. Rosevich. Protosevich. Protosevich. All right, fine. Wrote, also wrote uh, I Am Legend, The Cell, and Old Boy. The 2013 remake, I guess. I've heard I should see Old Boy. The yeah. original. You see the original. For sure. Yeah. 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 He was also on the writing team for 2011's Thor. For this oh. Yeah. Well, it's not the good Thor, but. Yeah, I mean, I can't really evaluate whether the writing was one of the things that was great about it or not, so. Yeah. It was better than the Dark World. I like the cell. I, I don't think the once again. I don't think that had anything to do with the writing, though. Hmm. Yeah, that was a visually stunning movie, though. Yeah, it yeah. Was. This is starring uh, the low rent Bradley Cooper, Josh Lucas. Yep, like I said, back when he was relevant, about five minutes. Dylan Johns. I mean, what else did this guy do? Uh, Sweet Home Alabama with Renee or uh, Reese Witherspoon, not Renee. Huh. Yeah, he was relevant from about like March to June 2006. <laughs> yep. That was about it. Uh, as the Dylan Johns, Kurt Russell as Robert Ramsey, which was my initial draw to this. Hey, Kurt Russell, cool. Was it also you that th- that was the reason you thought we'd already done this show? Yeah. I couldn't remember which of it it was. Yeah, I think it's because we saw Kurt Russell. You know, I know we had talked about it for a brief moment on the Kurt Russell show, but. Jakinda Barrett as Maggie James, uh, Richard Dreyfus as Richard Nelson, Emily Rossum as Jennifer Ramsey. I like her. She was pretty good. Uh, Mia Maestro as Elena Morales, Mike Vogel as Christian, Kevin Dillon as the ironically named Lucky Larry. Doing his best Matt Dillon impression. (laughs) Good Lord. Also, Freddie Rodriguez as Marco Valentin. I love Fred Rodriguez. 
Just a sidebar. I did too. Uh, Jimmy Bennett as Connor James, and out of left field, Fergie, Gloria, and Andre Brower as Captain Bradford. As Captain Holt. Oh wait. Yep. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize he was in this, and I had it. You know, I had the movie playing while I was uh, sorting laundry, and suddenly I heard Captain Holt. I was like, "What?" The? <laughs> that's that's the thing. I think all of us did the same thing. Captain Holt. <laughs> Why is he hugging on her Fergie? What the hell? That's not Rosa. Well, and you never know when it comes to something like Fergie. Like they try that all the time. Try and have someone cross over into acting, and sometimes it works. Sometimes. I mean, she was good in Planet Terror with Freddie Rodriguez. Okay. She was all right. I'm about to take your word for that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so uh, trivia: the upside down set was built on top of a large water tank in the sound stage, so that could be filled with water and drained in a matter of a few hours. So they had the set all ready. I guess they just pulled the plug and loaded that sucker up. James Cameron's like, I don't need it anymore. Go ahead. Yeah, you could use it. Uh, Guinness World Records considered the ship in this movie as the most detailed computer graphic design in their 2010 edition. Okay. Along with the fuel falling from the ceiling and other random liquidy things in this movie. Uh, the original cut of the film was 123 minutes long, nearly 25 minutes more than the theatrical release. About 20 minutes of the deleted scenes are set before the wave hits the ship. These in- include Maggie and Connor visiting the bridge where the captain and Gloria reveal their affair, a scene which we get more information on the Valentine Elena situation, and one scene where Valentine watches Gloria practice before her evening performance. Most of Josh Lucas's character in the background was removed, just like the conflict that was meant to be taking place between him and Maggie throughout their escape. These drastic changes probably were made after test screenings, but Wolfgang Peterson had the final cut at that time. Peterson himself later defined the changes, defended the changes in the interviews because they made the movie faster and the disaster happened earlier. Peterson never expressed any intention of releasing the original cut or creating an extended Blu-ray version. Uh, therefore, it's reasonable to assume that the shorter theatrical cut is the director's version. So we're going to take out all the character building. We're going to take out all the drama and all the connection that all these people have with each other and just 10 minutes wave. I mean, the original was two hours and it didn't feel like it. No, it didn't. It really did. And it was 72. Yeah. And two hours was short for a movie in 72, especially with one with so many faces in it. (laughs) No bodies, just faces. Yeah. Floating heads. I think that was the biggest drawback of this one. You had all these people that got together to escape the flooding for absolutely no reason except for they were all nearby each other. I don't think there was they uh, did this movie a great disservice by not building out any of these characters before the disaster hit. Well, and even in terms of making you care about the characters, the, the secondary characters, you can't set up a scene where there's the horrible choice of having to kill somebody else. If you don't give a shit about the person who gets killed, they're Valentine. never mentioned. Huh? Valentine in the in the elevator. Yeah, they're and they're yeah. never mentioned again. Uh, no one has to like face the consequences of that decision. You don't even see Richard Dreyfus like have a moment of regret or anything after it's done. Yeah, they don't even cut to him like immediately going, "Oh my God, what have I done?" It was just, "Oh, all right, let's move on." Right? Yeah. And he died in such a terrible way too. 
falls down an elevator shaft, gets impaled on table legs, and then the elevator car itself smashes into him. Yeah. It seemed like a a, a very un, uh, unnecessary death. So basically my death in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It was the kind of death that, like, you know, uh, Lucky Larry should have had, not not just this random dude. L- well, Lucky Larry didn't exactly get out unscathed either. I mean, no, the, but I'm, you know what I'm saying. Fell on him. Well, yeah. I, and I do have to say, in this one, the deaths were a lot more gruesome than they were for a PG movie or PG thirteen movie versus the 1972 version. I mean, this these deaths were pretty uh, horrendous, like, like the flash, fl- the flash uh, fire down the corridors in the kitchens. That was pretty pretty awful. But I think Maggie, was she the one who was uh, the stowaway? Uh, no, that was uh, Elena or Elisa or whatever. Elena. Yeah, Elena Morales. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you have this character who shows up, and she should be more of an issue to everybody because she's a stowaway who's obviously ignoring everything this guy's saying. Look, you're gonna, I'm going to get fired if you don't stay in the damn cabin. But it's, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, yeah, there was, I, I only cared about Kurt Russell in this movie because it's Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. I mean, the CGI looked great, but that just means I'm rooting for the ship or the ocean. Right. Which I wanted to come back to this and that here we are. What the hell was up with making the water growl? Whenever the water was coming at them, it was like, I didn't notice that. What? It sounded like a, like they took a sounds of like tigers and elephants having sex and then they slowed it down and then put other stuff on the top of it. So the water became a character, essentially, is I think what they were going for. I did not realize that. I didn't notice that either. Yeah, I was listening to it on headphones. I was watching it while I was working. You sure it wasn't just supposed to be like the sounds of b- water bubbling up and stuff? Maybe no, your it... headphones are broken. Maybe <laughs> maybe there really were wild animals having sex with nearby. Were you, I mean, did you look around? Was it a circus ship? Could have been. Maybe German Bluetooth ship? from your phone was taking your animal porn and putting it into your headphones <laughs> while you're watching. <laughs> no, my headset was plugged in, and my animal porn is on my other on my laptop. Good to know. We were talking about characters' deaths, and specifically with Dean Hackman, or no, uh, Shelley Winters. How you know you kind of expected her? Maybe she was going to drown. Or maybe she was going to make it, and then she died of a heart attack, and it's kind of like takes you back, and you're like, oh, my God, okay. In this one, Kurt has the death that we were, I think, expecting in the original. Right. Where he he gets all the way to the button. He's dying. He's pretty much dead. He's got just enough wherewithal to hit the right button, and then he's gone. And it was a good death. That was a really good death scene. Yeah, it just wasn't something I hadn't seen before in other disaster flicks. Yeah. It, it it felt expected. And you know what? If we weren't comparing these two specific movies, that wouldn't bother me. It's just you don't start with a movie that does that thing so well, not being paint by the numbers, and then go the other way, like not learning the lessons from the original, like taking all the wrong takeaways. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody in this was an archetype. Mm-hmm. The Captain uh, Captain Bradford and Gloria death scene, when the when the windows started cracking, Andre Brower and Fergie just embraced in one last moment before they get blown across by the water coming in. It was kind of well. Can we just say that that it was a little disturbing and and effective when the 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 initial wave hits, 
somebody's, you know, trying not to to fall and get impaled or break their neck or whatever, and then it stops, everybody's good, and then all of a sudden a bunch of people get electrocuted. Oh, up in the uh, in the disco? Which is, yeah, totally realistic that, you know, there's going to be loose live wires that are going to electrocute the water or electrify the water so people get electrocuted. And not every death is going to be immediately happening, you know, when the when the ship flips. There's going to be like hours of death happening. Oh, yeah. It, it was just really it was it was it was one of the parts I was like, OK, that's pretty effective. Another one of the really good scenes that I liked was after the ship had flipped seeing it upside down and the the power go out across the ship everything go dark with just this explosions going on and then ever, the uh, emergency lights coming up that was kind of a cool scene the question i have is the wave did did i miss it did we have any explanation of where the wave came from because i know in the first one it was there was an it was a underwater earthquake that triggered the wave no, in the second one, they don't explain it. It just happens. Yeah, they just say it's a rogue wave. That's it. That's the only explanation you get. Which is actually kind of frightening because that is a thing that could happen. In the first one, yeah. Okay, underwater earthquake, fine. I'll buy it. This one, trucking along, doing our boat things. Oh, no, wave. You know, give me some, you know, something. They have a hundred times more technology on this boat than they did on the first one. Why do they not know where the hell this wave came from? I don't know. Well, it's a rogue wave, so its stealth check beat their perception. <laughs> and then it snuck attacked the ship. Yeah, well, there you go. It flanked them. That's what happened. It got the yes. flank bonus. There was, there was flanking. Ballast? <laughs> if yeah. only they'd had the ballast. Right. I, I, I hate to say, I mean, I don't want to just beat the shit out of this movie. And it's not awful. It's just like, I, I hate it when I hear people bitch about the unnecessary remake because uh, we do remakes and I, I've seen remakes that bring something new to the table and yeah, some that don't, but like, this is kind of proving the point that that kind of idea, the unnecessary remake is a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, granted it was better than the house on Haunted Hill. True. But it still felt like, very much just like, here's a property, let's remake it, go. Right. Now, Pat, I have a question for you. Let's say you're Robert Ramsey sitting at the poker table, and you have a daughter, and she's pissed off at you and calls out your hand for walking off. What's your reaction? Cause that's Where the hell did I get a daughter? <laughs> what I would try to do is play it off like she's just, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it really would have been depend on what my actual hand was, because I would like to think that I would t train my daughter to say that when I actually had the nuts or something, when I actually had the best hand. She would, oh, fives. And then he goes all in. I'm like, I call. I I have the best hand. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That just seems like a real bitch move. Oh, that was a horrible. I mean, the fact that he actually had to fold because he only had fives was a real shitty move. Yeah. Yeah. What you do in that situation is you call up a rogue wave. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, wave. <laughs> just for that i'm going to die tonight i hope you're happy it's a royal flush uh, it's probably what he did you know he's <laughs> you all right i'm not really sure that he saw the same movie there were no monkeys in the wave a wave of monkeys capsizes the ship a monkey tidal wave 
from the makers of Sharknado. I'd watch it. <laughs> Monkey tidal wave. Someone start writing that right now. I mean, they already did zombie tidal wave, so why not? Uh, that's true. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Huh. That's the thing. Ian, Ian Zeering. Yeah. Huh. Good to know. That sounds awful. <laughs> Chimp Avalanche. Chimp Avalanche. Chimp Chimp Avalanche. No, Chimp Chimpalanche. That sounds like something you order off the menu at Dave and Buster's. I'd like the Chimpalanche and uh, <laughs> You know that serves too, sir. <laughs> I know what I am. <laughs> Give me the Chimpalanche. I want it. And a bottle of your best ballast. Alright, I'm I'm calling thumbs up <laughs> down there. I think it's time. We've gone off off the rail. This ship is capsized. And uh, a side of jelly beans, raw. <laughs> nice call. So thumbs up, thumbs down. 1972. A big thumbs up from me. Yeah, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, I go. I go thumbs up. For the now. Uh, I'll I'll go thumbs sideways. I didn't really hate it, but I didn't like it. It just kind of was there. I'm gonna go thumbs down, mainly because it just suffers from comparison from the original. Like if I had just watched this on its own, I probably would have been like, yeah, that wasn't very good. But okay, whatever. Would have been a thumb sideways. But since there is the direct comparison, I gotta go thumbs down. Yeah, I'm gonna go thumbs up. That's capsized. You're capsizing your thumb. So yeah, so it's it's a thumbs down, but it's kind of a thumbs up. Can so he do that? No. It's kind of in the middle. Yeah. No, I'm I'm gonna say no. You can't do that. You ain't the boss of me. Pat calls a foul. <laughs> There's a flag on the play. Thumbs up, thumbs down. The Kurt Russell factor did not save this movie for me. So Joel. What's up next? Ah, uh, it is that time of year, one of our favorite shows that we do. It's time for the Billboard show. Ooh. Yeah, that's where we take a specific week of the then compared to the current week of the now, and uh, hopefully don't get a copyright hit. Uh, yeah, we'll look at the Hot 100, and yeah, hope hope that the, all the music clips we play will actually get, get us through. Yeah. So yeah, if you have your opinions on anything we're going to talk about when we do the uh, Billboard Hot 100 show, or uh, opinions about the Poseidon Adventure, give us a call, let us know, 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Right. You're looking for our older stuff? It's iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and all sorts of pod-chasing places. Leave us reviews and all that fun stuff. And we will be back. Call, or call us and leave us a voicemail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that, too. Hey, what, Josh, what number could we do that at? The one I just said, Mike. Right. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with uh, Music on the Mind. No, we're all echoing now. Are we? Nope. Nope. Yeah. Stop. Oh, there it is. No, no, it, did, it did not stop. It it did not stop. It. And matter of fact, it continued in there. Now it's gone. Okay. Ain't no good. party like an echo party. Because an echo party it don't just stop. Stop, whoa, whoa, whoa. stop. 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 <laughs> it just. It just. Stopped.